0: Good morning church, good singing, please turn with me in your Bibles to page 768 or the book of Amos. We'll actually start reading in chapter 5, verse 18. And in case you're wondering what this uh, big hoop to do is today with the Reformation Day, you have heard it again and again, you've heard it in the children's messages over the past month. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the scriptures alone, for the glory of God alone. That was the cry of the Reformation. Re- Reformation from what? We were, we were, it was a movement that began really in the late Middle Ages really found its fullness in Martin Luther because the printing press came along. The news could be spread, but that movement to take the church and its teachings back to Scripture, focused on Christ rather than on tradition or good works like cleaning up your room without complaining and that sort of thing. And uh, to take it to Scripture alone, which is one message, Jesus Christ alone. And those reformers set us on a path of looking at Scripture so that we're not only... We're not just remembering what happened in the old days, reformed, but we are ever-reforming, ever-pressing to reform every part of our lives in practice to Scripture. And the reformers loved the book of Amos. They loved the prophets... Because they saw not only motivation for, believe, for, for, for worshiping God in response to his grace, but they also saw in every word of scripture, especially the prophets, that they must love those around them and love those around them in very practical ways. Especially the poor, uh, developing jobs, uh, ministering to their bodies, ministering to their marriages, taking care of children, taking care of public health needs and so forth. Those reformers who preached Jesus Christ alone said, this grace has to be found, has to be practiced practically in the streets of our cities. That was the legacy of Martin Luther and John Calvin and others. It's not something far removed from us that has no, no connection to us in Memphis. You know, in 1934, Ebenezer Baptist Church sent their pastor, Michael King, to Germany for a World Baptist Conference, World Baptist Alliance. And Michael King made a tour of the Middle East and then came to Germany and he could see the rise of fascism and, uh, and uh, attacks on Jews. And Michael King saw in the example of a man he learned about there, Martin Luther, that there was the inspiration for taking the reform and the dignity, transformation that his country needed. That he was the inspiration for that. And he came back and he changed his name to Martin Luther King Sr., He went down to the county clerk and he pulled the birth certificate of his son and he marked through it Michael Jr. and wrote Martin Luther King Jr. The Reformation principle of loving God in response to his receiving Christ alone for salvation and that moving us to deep, passionate, selfless love For those in need around us, that's the story of the Reformation. It's the story of Amos. We begin reading in chapter 5, verse 18. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It's darkness and not light as if a man fled from a lion and a bear met him or went into the house and leaned his hand against the wall and a serpent bit him. Is not the day of the Lord darkness and not light and gloom with no brightness in it? I hate. I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies, even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings. I will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fattened animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs or the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Did you bring to me sacrifices and offerings during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You shall take up Sikath, your king, and Kian, your God, your star God, your images that that you made for yourselves. And I'll send you into exile beyond Damascus, says the Lord, whose name is the God of hosts. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountain of Samaria, the notable men of the first of the nations uh, to whom the house of Israel comes. Pass over to Calne and see, and from there go to Hamath the great, then go down to Gath of the Philistines. Are you better than these kingdoms? Is their territory greater than your territory or you who put far away the, de- des- uh, the day of disaster and bring near the seat of violence? Woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock and calves from the midst of the stall. Who sing idle songs to the sound of the harp and like David invent for themselves instruments of music who drink wine in bowls And anoint themselves with the finest oils, but are not grieved over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, they shall now be the first of those who go into exile. And the revelry of those who stretch themselves out shall pass away. The Lord God has sworn by himself, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. I abhor the pride of Jacob. I hate his strongholds, and I will deliver up the city and all that is in it. If ten men remain in one house, they shall die. One One's relative, the one who anoints him for burial, shall take him up to bring the bones out of the house and shall say to him who is in the innermost parts of the house, is there still anyone with you? He shall say no, and he shall say silence. We must not mention the name of the Lord. For behold, the Lord commands, and the great house shall be struck down into fragments and the little house into bits. Do horses run on rocks? Does one plow there with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison, and the fruit of righteousness, into wormwood. You who rejoice in Lodabar, who say, have we not by our own strength captured Carneim for ourselves? For behold, I will raise up against you a nation, a house of Israel, declares the Lord, the God of hosts. And they shall oppress you from Hamath to the brook of the Arabah. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. Oh, Lord, would you open our eyes to behold powerful, convicting, converting, even encouraging things from this portion of your prophetic word. We pray it in Jesus' name and for his sake and God's people said together, amen. The Nobel Prize winner, Daniel Kina. Uh, Kahneman, psychologist, in a speech 2002 explained an experiment conducted at New York University. Fifteen participants and one actor, or he called him stooge. Fifteen uh, people, participants, three different groups. Three groups of five plus this one actor. And uh, they were in the different booths, soundproof or, or not soundproof, but in different booths. And, and they uh, were each to talk about their, their personal lives, uh, their struggles, their concerns, uh, their trials. And, and uh, so they went around and the, 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 the deal was that the mic would be hot for two minutes and then it would cut off and the next person would speak. It came around eventually to this fellow who was an actor, and uh, he started talking about it. He, he had just moved to New York. He was very nervous about that. He had an anxiety disorder. He said, and this this anxiety disorder would sometimes trip him into a seizure. And as he was talking along about his nervousness of moving into New York, he, he started stuttering. And he said, I, 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 I I'm, I'm, I'm feeling, I'm feeling, I'm not feeling good. I, I am, I think a seizure's c- c- come, come, coming. I, I am, I am dying. And the microphone went silent. Out of the 15 participants, only four ran immediately to help. Five eventually, of the 15, only five eventually opened their doors and left their booth after the man having the seizure apparently had choked to death. Of course, it was just an exercise. But Daniel Kahneman said, let me explain to you what this experiment shows. No one of us When we become aware that somebody else has heard of a need, no one of us is naturally inclined to move toward the need. We are each inclined to stay where we are, to remain complacent, thinking somebody else will take care of it. And yet we each think, you know, if I ever encounter someone in need, I will be the first on the scene. Kahneman said those participants to his audience, those participants are you and me. He could have been the prophet Amos confronting complacency. It is not natural for us to move toward need. It is not natural for us to move toward need, especially when it involves danger. That is not our natural disposition. Our natural disposition is to take care of self first, to think if there is a need out there, somebody will become aware of it. And because they're basically good, they'll take care of it too. What power is there? what power is sufficient to move selfish people out of their complacency toward need the world into which the reformers preached was a world that was full of selfishness they didn't care about the sick didn't care about the refugee The the, the people who had their needs sufficient, they didn't care about the hungry. They didn't care about public health. And these reformers getting in touch with the Christ of scriptures said, what should what should an encounter with a God who moves toward us and loves us so much that he demonstrated his love in by giving his own son? What should that move us to do? It should move us toward need. Toward the least of these In the name of Jesus. Not because we're going to earn any salvation. Our salvation is already secure. But in response to that. In gratitude for that. That's the point remember that Amos makes in chapter 2 verse 10. You've been redeemed from slavery. Therefore how could you possibly be complacent. And not move toward need. As God moved toward you. And sent Moses to you. And pursued you. And put up with you. Through the wilderness. And brought you into the promised land. What should be our response to our natural inclination to complacency? It must be to repent, to turn from that back to Jesus. Remembering the two things, and I'm going to add a third, the two things that uh, Amos, the three things that Amos reminds us of in this passage. That judgment is coming. God hates pride. Pride. And then I'll give another surprise later. Judgment is coming. That's what, that's what uh, Amos warns us of in verses 9 through 14. God, there's going to come a day when God will have all of us stand before him and give an account for what we have done. And he'll separate the sheep from the goats as, the, as Jesus said in Matthew 25. What have you done to the least of these in my name? And you've done it unto me and you prove that I have set my love on you and the inheritance has been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Judgment is coming. And, and, and Amos appear, appeals to our, our logic. He, he represents God who logically reasons with us. And he begins this way. He begins by asking, what do you, do you really think? Do you really think that you're a match for God? Do you really think that you have anything to offer to a holy God that will justify you on your own? Is that how you can remain so smug and careless rather than be enraptured by his grace moving you to action? He makes that point in verses 18 to 23 and 25 to 27 by saying, you think that you flatter me with your worship. But I am God he says in verses nine and ten, uh, you, you think that um, you think that uh, you can uh, take on God and stand up to him, that you deserve the good gifts that He has given to you, but I tell you you should realize that you're in the holy presence of God and and deserving of judgment, and if one of you should die. In that judgment, he says in verses 9 and 10, no one should speak as if you have a right to stand before God with your words. It's troubling. He goes on to say, and how, how do you think that, you, that you're going to make it? If you, 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 you trust in verses 13 and 14, you think that, um, that you'll trust in your horses or your strength. You say, after all, we conquered Lo Debar and Karnaim. Uh, but those are just little towns. It, Lodabar literally means no thing. Karnaim is a little town that no one's heard of. And it means doubly strong. He says, you take pride in these things you have accomplished with your own hands. And then you come into worship and you think that you are flattering God by doing so. You need to realize you're no match for God. You don't justify yourself before God. God tells you what he demands, what his standards are. And the only proper response is to fall in your face before a holy God. Judgment before that God is coming. Then he, he says, uh, you should repent. Judgment is coming just for your own sake. Verses 11 through 14 Uh, you are heading towards self-destruction. It's not the highest possible motivation for following God, to to, to follow him because you don't want to be judged. But if that's what it takes to jolt you out of, uh, jolt us out of our passivity and our complacence, to wake us up from our smugness, our apathy, our pride, then God loves us too much to allow us to feel comfortable. He loves us too much to care how it hurts our feelings. God is God. There is no other. And if you want to stay alive, if you want to survive in judgment, consider yourself turned this day from selfishness to the only one who can save you. Jacques Ellul made that point when we were, I think I may have made that point when we were studying Jonah. That God loves us too much to allow us to persist in our sin. And so he he threatens judgment against us. Not because he enjoys threatening us with judgment. But because he, he loves us and does not want us to continue in that destructive way. And that destructive way includes not giving, not living generously. Only living selfishly. We were made to give. We were made to receive. And human beings only thrive as they're giving and receiving. And we're only motivated to do that enduringly and happily in view of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Judgment is coming. Wake up and realize who God is. Judgment is coming. Just recognize what's going to happen to yourself if you try to face him on your own. Judgment is coming. The church, too, must wake up and realize that complacency is a sure path to death and destruction of a church. I once read uh, Tom Rainer, a piece by Tom Rayner, church consultant. He's worked with our church as well. He did an autopsy. He said he did a spiritual autopsy on a church that had closed its doors, that had gone under, that had uh, gone out of existence. And he found 11 things about that church. The church, he said, refused to look like the community. The community around it changed, they refused to look like it. The church had no community focused ministries, they turned inside. Members became more focused on memorials than ministry. The percentage of the church budget for members' needs kept increasing. There were no evangelistic emphases. The members had more and more arguments about what they wanted as opposed to what the, what the community needed. With few exceptions, pastoral tenure grew shorter and shorter. The church rarely prayed together. The church had no clarity as to why it existed. The members idolized another another era, and the facilities continued to deteriorate, conveying to the community that they had no long-term desire to stay among them and minister. Judgment is coming. By God, against those who live selfishly, against churches that remain complacent. Remember when we studied the books, the the churches, and, and Revelation, and we studied the, the church at Laodicea. He said, "I wish that you were you, I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You're like those those uh, those um, those waters around Laodicea that are a kind of emetic if you try to to drink them. I would rather you be like the hot therapeutic." baths up above Laodicea or the cold bubbling streams below Laodicea I want you to be a healing influence I want you to be a soothing influence I, that's what you are that's why you exist in this world and if you don't he says if you if you don't become salt and light healing waters I'll remove your candlestick Jesus threatened against the church of Laodicea a church that ceases to exist for ministry in response to grace, to the needs of the community and the world around it, is a church that God will eventually do away with. Second warning that we find in the passage is in verses 1 to 7, that God hates pride. That's what led to this complacency, this pride, security, in uh, their resources, security in their absence of conflict, woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Now, remember, he is addressing these who are the leaders, the ones who have financial security. And he's saying on behalf of those who are poor, those who are disenfranchised, those who are at the mercy of these, he's, he's speaking on their behalf and he's warning those who are smug and secure, until unless you turn and minister to those who are in need around you, as I took care of you, I'm going to send you into exile, which he eventually did. He reasons with them again. You think that you are, that you you think that you're strong because you've you've uh, because Kalne and Hamath are now territories that you control now those were large syrian cities and so they're thinking look at those those cities are you know they once they once tried to oppose us but now they serve us gath the land of the giants the philistines that is now subject to to judah and he says do you think that i can't do the same to you that i did to those larger nations reasons with them. Don't feel secure in and of yourselves, in your own resources. He, he says to them verses 4 to 6 woe to those who lie on beds of ivory and stretch themselves out on their couches and eat lambs from the flock sing idle songs and don't care about the others around them in need. They indulge nothing wrong with sleeping on a bed he's just saying don't don't trick out your bed until you've made sure that the poor have a bed. Don't live in indulgence before you, you give to those who lack the same basic necessities that you think that you cannot live without. God says he, he hates, he detests that kind of pride that kind of complacency that leads to that kind of smugness to the point that i say that they say those people deserve to live like they do because they haven't been as resourceful as i have they haven't uh, they haven't worked themselves up and the ranks like i have they haven't picked themselves up by their bootstraps if they were just if they would just be more disciplined, if they would just have a more stable family, if they would if they would just work harder, if they if they were if they were just more educated, then everything would be better for them. And then God says, this is the attitude that I particularly despise. Because you actually, he says to the people, these people of God, you actually think you deserve what you have. And others deserve what they are getting one theologian said when the worship of God's people fails to produce justice and righteousness and mercy in society God's judgment cannot be far behind what Amos is saying is pride looks at the cross chapter 2 verse 10 pride looks at redemption and it says you know I really don't need that as much as other people need Jesus. There there are some people in this world who really need Jesus. And there are some people in this world who actually needed Jesus to die in their place. I'm glad I'm not that bad off. Or pride looks at mercies, like the provision of the necessities of life or even even, uh, abundant blessings in life and says, you know, I really deserve this and I think I'm going to indulge more of them. Rather than, how may I show mercy to others as God has shown mercy to me? And pride looks at possessions and says, I earned everything that I have. I owe nothing to anyone. Especially God. Strong words. Strong medicine. But I said there's a third thing in this passage that we can't miss. Yes, we should repent of our complacency because judgment is coming. And we should repent of our complacency because God hates pride. But we also must repent of our complacency because that's no way to live. And you want to live. If you want to really live, the way to live is by looking full in the face of Jesus and saying as you gave yourself away for me show me how i may give myself away for you as you as you entered into the danger and the dirt and the horrors of this world where may i serve you that way that i may rejoice eternally with you show use me up in this world that's the way to live that's what i was made for where do i get that in this Passage that was so important. This verse that was so important to the Reformation. This verse that was so important to Martin Luther King. Verse eighteen, uh, chapter five, verse uh, twenty. Where is that? Where is that? Where is that? Let justice roll down like waters. I can't even see my. Oh, there, twenty-four. There, thank you for nothing. Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. That's so the way we want to live, bubbling over. Remember what David said? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. And he comes down to the end of the, of the 23rd Psalm and he says, I'm not going to get mad at my enemies. I'm not going to get that mad at those who oppress me and hunt me like an animal. Because I'm going to put my eyes back on God who prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. They can't take anything away from me. They can't take my dignity away from me. He prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies so that my cup overflows. And because my cup overflows, goodness, justice, Love, mercy will follow me. That will be the legacy of my life until I find myself in the house of the Lord forever. He there, he puts it all together. Don't look at your enemies. Don't cower away from those who uh, disagree with you, make you upset or t- starting to take things away from you. Remember, God sets a table before you in the presence of your enemy. Your cup overflows, and it will overflow with streams of mercy, never failing. And justice will roll out of your life, bubble out of your life, like an ever-flowing stream. Even as Jesus said, "Those who believe on me, out of them, will flow rivers. Of life. That's the way you want to live. You don't want to live cowering, hoarding, fighting, angry. You want to live with the confidence of a good and gracious and sovereign God revealed in Jesus Christ who loved you so much. He gave his son for you. And in response to that, become known as the most generous people in the face of the earth. A number of you know the Chen Chen family, C-H-E-N, C-H-E-N. The Chen Chen family, pioneer missionaries um, in West Africa and then eventually moved to Malawi and Uganda and South Africa. <clears throat> I remember a, a, a prayer letter sent from Palmer Chen Chen one time. And Palmer Chen Chen in this prayer letter said that he, he went on a whitewater rafting trip um, in Zimbabwe went down the Zambezi river it was in, he got in one of those rafts you know with eight people put their helmets on their life preservers and, and and he said behind them was the in front of them was the roar of the Victoria Falls and a mile wide 300 feet deep at the bottom of the pool it was pouring in and Roaring. And and the, the guide said, now, we know the raft and he said, remember, you know, the, the, the strongest uh, ra- uh, rapids you have in in uh, America. Those, those are class five. These will be seven and eight. So when you're thrown from the raft, he didn't say in the unlikely event that you'll be thrown from the raft. Or in case you're thrown from the raft, he says, when you are hurled from this raft in those rapids, I just have this advice for you. This will save your life. Do not yield to what is natural and instinctive for you. That is to swim to the calm water. There'll be calm water along the edges. Don't swim there. Go back into the rapids. Keep yourself in the rough water. Stay in the rapids because the crocodiles are waiting for you in the still water. <laughs> Paul Chin ended his letter by saying. That's where we want to be. Live with the white water. Live in the white water where it's a little uncertain and unsafe. That's where Jesus will use you. That's where you'll find yourself most to be yourself. That's where you show Jesus. I thank you for what you did for me. Let's pray together. Lord, if we're honest. There are times when we tremble at the Prince of Darkness, Grim. We confess that to you and say, O oh Lord, we won't wait until we become courageous. We will ask you, make us courageous by reminding us that you are with us. And we ask, O oh Lord, we would not waste our lives. We would not waste our resources. But that in response to the grace of Jesus Christ. We would receive him. And live full tilt for his glory. Staying in the white water. Even when it's uncertain, when it's unsafe. So that when we appear in heaven. We'll hear well done good and faithful servant and we'll realize Everything we gave in this life was more than worth it. In Jesus' name we pray and God's people said, amen.